Interesting that they sang about victory. I'm going to follow up on that. If you will, turn to the 14th chapter of Mark. And in a few moments, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 32. In many wars, there have been decisive battles that changed the course of victory of history. In the early 19th century in Europe, Napoleon's army was sweeping across the continent. But in 1815, at the Battle of Waterloo, Lord Washington was successful in defeating Napoleon. Had that battle not been successful, we might be all speaking French today. In the War for American Independence, American General George Washington trapped British Commander George Con Charles Cornwallis at Yorktown, which ultimately led to the British surrender. And had that battle not been won, we might all be British subjects today. On D-Day, June 6 of 1944, thousands of Allied troops entered Europe and began their march toward Berlin. And had that invasion failed, we might all be speaking German today. In many wars, there is a turning point that changes the course of history. And in the quest for our souls, perhaps the most important battle of all was fought in Gethsemane. Stand, if you will. You follow as I read from the NIV, Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time. He said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask today that you would open our minds and our hearts to the understanding of these, your words. And Father, as we pace the, the battles of our lives Help us to discover the peace that Jesus experienced, even the peace that he offers to us today. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. After the Last Supper, the walk from that upper room down to the Garden of Gethsemane was a short walk, but also a very steep downhill walk. Jesus and the disciples descended from Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city on a hill, down into the Kidron Valley. 
The brook of Kidron was a narrow stream at the bottom of that valley, but nobody ever drank water from that stream. A Jewish historian reported reported that this stream of water often ran red because of the remains and the blood from the sacrifices up on the Temple Mount, draining down to the water below. And so Jesus and his disciples crossed this creek with its blood-red banks and those tainted colored stones and then climbed back up the other side a few hundred feet to an olive grove called the Mount of Olives. I want us to see today some lessons from what I am calling the Battle of Gat Shimoni. Number one in your outlines today, Jesus prayed where olives were crushed. The Bible says they went to a place called Gethsemane. The name of the garden came from two Hebrew words, Gat Shimoni, which is Hebrew for oil press. This was a grove of olive trees, so it only made sense that there would have been an olive press nearby. In the harvesting process, olives were not picked. They were harvested by taking long sticks and beating the branches so that the ripe olives would then fall down into a cloth spread out beneath them. There were three steps to crushing the olives. First of all, they were dumped into a large stone trough and would be crushed. And the way that they crushed them was that there would be a man pushing an arm of wood that was bracketed to a paddle down in that trough. And this paddle pushed a perfectly round stone ball, think of something like a bowling ball, through that trough, and it crushed the grapes. The second step would have been then to take this olive mush and put it in leather bags and then stack several bags on top of each other and then placing a large tree trunk on top of the bags to squeeze out even more oil. And then the third stone would have been for several men working together to lift large boulders and put on top of this tree trunk, adding more weight to then further crush the oil from the olives. There is a significance to Jesus coming here to pray because on this night, he was facing a soul-crushing struggle. We've all seen those popular artworks that portray Jesus calmly and serenely kneeling in the garden with his hands folded perfectly and a light shining down from heaven on his contented face. I don't think that that was the case at all. Even though this was before the scourging that would come later at the hands of the roaming soldiers, I believe that Jesus fell in anguish and cried out to God in agony. He had even told his friends when they arrived in the garden, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Make no mistake, this was not like a young child after being surprised by something saying, oh, I thought I was going to die. It wasn't anything like that. Here, Jesus was a grown man, and he was confiding to his closest friends, I am so filled with sorrow that it's killing me. And that's not just my opinion. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews 
says in Hebrews 5, 7, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the only one who could save him from death. Jesus was under such pressure and such strain that in the Luke account of the garden experience, Luke, who was a doctor, tells us, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke was describing a medical condition that we refer to today as thrombosis. The translation is blood mixed with sweat. Jesus was under such agonizing pressure that his skin began to ooze bloody sweat. The condition isn't unique. Dr. David Terasaka, a medical doctor and a committed Christian, said this, of medical significance is that Luke mentions him as having sweat-like blood. The medical term for this is hematidrosis, has been seen in patients who have experienced extreme stress or shock to their systems. The capillaries around the sweat pores become fragile and leak blood into the sweat. One of the most feared and hated kings in French history was Charles IX. And in 1572, he ordered the St. Bartholomew Massacre, in which over 10,000 Protestants were killed. The stress from his guilt drove Charles insane. He died at the age of 23 from hematidrosis. Blood began to seep through his pores, and he died in agony. It is a rare condition, and most people who had it in the first century died from it. That is how close Jesus was to death, even before the cross and before the Roman scourging. Number two, Jesus saw the cup of suffering. Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Abba was the most affectionate term that a Jewish child could use to address their father. Today, we would say daddy or papa. And what Jesus was saying was, daddy, you can do anything. And I'm asking you to take this cup away from me. That phrase, to drink a cup, is simply a phrase that means to experience something. Today, we might say something like traveling down the road of life or turning a page in one's life's story or taking a step in life's journey. It's referring to experiencing something. Earlier, Jesus had asked James and John if they would be able to drink the cup that he knew he was going to experience. And that was his way of simply asking them if they were ready to take that step. The night before the cross, Jesus figuratively looked into his cup and he saw such a horrible sight that it caused him to plead, Daddy, please take this away. Let me tell you what I think he saw coming. He saw isolation. When you read about the life of Jesus, it's clear that he enjoyed being with people. Common people received him gladly. His enemies accused him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
children flocked to him and he took them in his arms. But the closer he got to the cross, people began to draw away. Early in his ministry, there were thousands following him. He fed 5,000 people on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. But when he began to talk about discipleship, people began to pull away. On this night, he was with his 12 disciples and then one of them left to betray him. And so he and the other 11 went to the garden and then he selected his closest three friends, Peter, James, and John, and asked them to go deeper in the garden with him to pray and they fell asleep. Later, when the mob led by Judas arrived, all of them fled into the night. One of the greatest fears we have is that of being alone. Infants experience it. Children and youth experience it. Adults, senior adults experience it. Listen carefully. Jesus was divine, and at the same time, he was fully human. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But for now, just remember that old spiritual Jesus walked this lonesome valley and he had to walk it by himself. In his divinity, Jesus knew in the garden that in those next hours he was going to be alone, away from all human support. And in his humanity, he shuddered at the thought of being alone. There's something else that Jesus saw, and that was physical pain. Jesus was 100% God, and at the same time, he was 100% human. John 10, 38, Jesus said, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. John 12, 45, he said, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. Colossians 2, 9, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ. John begins his gospel within the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then later he says the word became flesh. Jesus was not just like God. He was God. And at the same time, he was fully human. And as a human, he experienced physical pain just like we do. One of my favorite prints in my office at home is of a young Mary holding Jesus in her lap. Only it's not Jesus the baby from the manger in this particular print. He's a toddler of maybe three, three and a half or four years old. And you almost miss it, but if you look very, very closely down at the bottom, there is a little cloth band-aid, bandage around one of his toes. And in, in my mind's eye, I see Jesus out watching some sheep grazing. And somehow he scrapes his toe on a rock or a stick or something. And he comes running to mama. And Mary picks him up and gathers him in his lap and kisses away those tears. And even though he probably didn't really need it, just to make him feel better, she put that little cloth bandage on his toe. Jesus had nerves running throughout his body. And when he looked into that cup, he, in his humanity, shuddered at the thought of the physical pain he was about to endure. 
rough hands would grab him and twist his arms behind his back. He would be beaten. He would feel someone spit on his face. His beard would be pulled from his face, a semblance of a crown with long thorny tips would be crushed into his head. Soldiers would blindfold him and hit him on the head with a stick and say, who did that? And then hit him again and say, what about this time? Who did it this time? His back would be bared and his hands would be lashed above his head to a whipping post. And that whip would come down again and again and again 39 times with each time tearing into his back in multiple places because of the pieces of bone and shards of pottery and sharpened rocks that were at the end of that whip. In the garden, Jesus was pleading, Oh, Daddy, Daddy, please don't let them do that to me. We cannot imagine the dread that Jesus was feeling that night in the garden. When Jesus looked into that cup, representing what he knew that he would experience, he saw something else. He not only saw loneliness, he not only saw the physical pain, but he saw spiritual shame. And whereas those first two, that isolation and the pain were felt by his humanity, the spiritual shame was felt by his deity. You remember Jesus was divine. And in that cup, he began to see the sins of all humanity and his holy nature must have recoiled at the thought of taking on all that shame and disgrace. Can you remember a time that you did something very, very wrong? And without dredging up all of the details, do you remember the shame and the disgrace and the guilt that you felt? Well, you see, Jesus never felt that before until the cross. And he took in his body all the shameful sins of the world. Now, most of us today want to think that we're pretty good people, but think about the most vile criminals in our world. Think about the child abusers and the rapists and the serial murderers. And in that figurative cup, Jesus was praying not to have to drink was all of the dirty and shameful and disgusting and vile acts of humanity. And the Bible doesn't say that he took on our sins. It said that he became sin for us. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless, but he took into himself the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. For us. Jesus had never been touched by sin. He was perfect. Hebrews 4.15 said he was tempted in every way we are, yet he did not sin. And yet, Isaiah 53 verse 6 prophesied that God laid on him the iniquities of us all. Now when we read that phrase, God laid on him, it sounds weak. 
Let me explain to you what Isaiah 53 really means. There are almost 50 words in the Old Testament, in the Bible in all, that refer to our English word lay or laid. And it just depends on how it's used, who is being laid, or what is being laid down. But in this one verse, in Isaiah 53, 6, there is a word that in Hebrew is pegah, and it's only used here, once here and in no other place in Scripture. And God wasn't simply laying down sin. God was forcing the sin on Jesus in a harsh and cruel way. That's what he was feeling in the garden. And so he was pleading with the Father not to do it. But we very quickly come to the next point. Jesus showed us peace under pressure. We need to see the change that takes place in verses 41 and 42. Because you see, up to that point, the scriptures des describe the anguish that he was feeling, the, the mental, emotional, spiritual anguish that he was feeling. The earlier verses have him talking to his disciples about, couldn't you just stay awake for a little while? But there's a change in the tone and in the emotion in verses 41 42 enough he says the hour has come look the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us go here comes my betrayer just as those olives were crushed three times Jesus prayed three times and when he prayed the third time there was a turning point let me give you the Phillips paraphrase of what I think Jesus was praying in the garden I think he was saying something like father daddy you know what what I would want my desire would be to not drink that cup that is before me I would escape that loneliness and that pain and that disgrace but daddy I'm going to do it I'm going to do it for you I choose your will not mine. Besides adding the medical detail that Luke does about his sweat falling like drops of blood, Luke adds another detail as well in his account of the garden experience. Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 42, Luke says this, Jesus is praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I love thinking about that verse. <laughs> we don't know what that angel said or did, but we know that it gave Jesus strength. Maybe that angel whispered in his ear, beyond the cross, there's going to be an empty tomb. Maybe that angel whispered to him, you have to remember, this is the reason you came here. Maybe all that angel said was, remember, your daddy loves you. All we know is that he was strengthened. And when we read the, the cumulative accounts, especially in Matthew and in John, when you read all of the accounts, we see that when Jesus returned the third time, he had found peace. His head was held high and he was resolute. 
in the John account. In John chapter 18, verse 11, when Judas and the mob arrives, Peter tries to resist on behalf of Jesus. And Peter, Jesus says to Peter, the cup, the cup that he had been praying not to have to drink, he says, the cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now that's one of those rhetorical questions you don't need an answer for. What he was really saying was, I will drink this cup. And in a very real sense, it was as if Jesus was saying to Satan in that battle of Gatshimoni, as they were battling for your soul and for mine, Jesus was saying, you're going to have to go through me and I will not let that happen. And so after all of this, I ask you today, what crushing experience are you facing today? Is it a relationship? Is it a health issue? Is there a burden crushing your spirit? Is it a decision that's weighing you down and crushing you like an olive press? Is it loneliness? Is it perhaps a disappointment in someone else or even in yourself that's crushing your spirit? What lessons are there for us in the battle of Gatshimon? The first one is this, surrender your will to God's always perfect plan. Jesus said, take this cup away from me. A modern day paraphrase might be, I need to get out of this mess. You might be asking God to change your circumstances, but God is more interested in changing you. You might be asking God to fix the problem, and what God really needs to do is fix you. You may be asking God to calm the storm. But what God wants to do is be with you in the storm. Learn this lesson from Gethsemane. Like Jesus, ask God for what you will. But then add, not my will, but yours. There was another garden in the Bible. The book of Genesis tells us about the Garden of Eden. And God put two people there and he shared his will with them. And Eve and the first Adam asserted their will over God's will. And the result was the ruin of humanity. But there's another Bible, uh, another garden. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he surrendered his will to God and the result was the redemption of humanity we face the same choice every day and it's not just the big decisions those major events those turning points in our lives it's every day is it going to be my will or God's will the second lesson we learn is to meet your challenge with God's peace it's been said that life is a series of battles, but with the Lord we have an edge. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament was facing a much larger opposing army, and he did what Jesus did in the garden. He fell on his face before the Lord. In verse 12, 2 Chronicles 20, he says, We do not know what to do, but our eyes 
are on you. What a tremendous prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Have you ever felt that way? I don't know what to do. I'm out of ideas. <laughs> Keep your eyes on God. I don't know which way is up, which way to turn. Keep your eyes on God. Some might be saying, I have never felt this low in my life. And my soul is sorrowful. Keep your eyes on God. Oh, but pastor, we don't have a permanent pastor here at First Baptist Titusville. You know the answer. What is it? Keep your eyes on God. God sent a prophet to tell King Jehoshaphat in verse 15, don't be afraid because the battle isn't yours. It's the Lord's. God wants us to give him our battles so that he can deal with them in the best way and so that he will get the glory and the recognition for doing it. You remember the definition I gave you for glorifying God? Making God look good. Give your battles to God so that he will look good to the world around you when he deals with those battles on your behalf. Jehoshaphat became so certain of victory that he placed the choir on the front lines and they marched out singing their praises to God. When the enemy heard that, they became so confused that they started fighting among themselves and by the time the Israelite army arrived, they had already been defeated. Here's another great promise from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. And that's your homework for today. Isaiah 26.3. Spend some time this week in whatever translation you like to use with Isaiah 26.3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Meditate on that verse. Study that verse phrase by phrase, word by word. Ask God's Holy Spirit to reveal that verse to you. I believe it will bless you. Even when facing immense struggle physically, emotionally, and spiritually, Jesus found peace when he gave that battle to God. Meet your challenges with God's peace. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him. He's to blame. Upon his precious head, they placed a crown of thorns. They laughed and said, behold the king. They struck him and they cursed him and mocked his holy name. All alone, he suffered everything. To the howling mob, he yielded. He did not for mercy cry. The cross of shame, he took alone. And when he cried, it's finished. And gave himself to die. Salvation's wondrous plan was done. Gospel song composer Carl Overholt continued with this. He could have called 
10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. I used to love singing that song. But I have to share something with you. Carl Overholt took some poetic license with it. He said he could have called 10,000 angels, and that just has a ring to it. It's magnificent. It just fits. It sounds right. In the Matthew account of the garden experience, when Peter tried to resist, Jesus said to Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. And so if you do the math, 12 legions would have been at least 72,000 angels. And in the Bible, angels are not those chubby little children characters with wings. They are supernatural beings and very often they, are, they appear as armed soldiers. How much damage do you think 72,000 supernatural soldiers could do in this world? Last week, I gave you the example of King Hezekiah in the Old Testament. And we read about how one angel put 185,000 Assyrians to death. If you do the math... Twelve legions of angels could wipe out 13.2 billion people. <laughs> it might not have the same ring to it as 10,000 angels, but allow me to close with this this morning. He could have called armies of angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called armies of angels but he walked out of that garden to a cross and then out of an empty tomb for you and for me. If you cannot claim that into your heart and life today, do not let the next few minutes pass without talking to me or talking to someone in this church. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you today for these precious reminders that we have had from your word today. And Father, our prayers that you would instill in us that godly peace that only you can provide for us. Father, as we struggle sometimes, sometimes to the point of even feeling like it's, it's a sorrow even unto death, help us to feel your peace. Help us to feel your presence. And realize that you have already won that battle for us. If we'll just give it to you. Father, if there is any decision that needs to be made today regarding a relationship with you. I pray that you would send your spirit and in these next few moments. Turn that heart back to you. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. We're going to sing our hymn of commitment this morning. If there is any decision that you would make regarding your relationship with God, your relationship with this church, church, would you listen and respond as God touches your heart? Stand as we sing together. <laughs>